When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My number one album, big shocker to me, also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swifty. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Folklore just is that like it's a perfect album welcome back to the spark parade a show where i talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives i'm adam uns thanks so much for joining me coming up this week is my chat with actor writer director lily bevan about her love for the asterix series of french comics andrew lloyd weber's world dominating roller skating musical extravaganza starlight express and the work of playwright carol churchill in particular her plays cloud nine and escaped alone I was very lucky to steal some time with Lily while she is rehearsing As You Like It at the Globe Theatre in London, and that show is opening right now, or rather it's starting previews right now, so you should finish listening to this episode and then run to London as fast as you can to watch Lily perform. Hope that fits into your schedule and budget, because it is mandatory. Okay? Perfect! So Lily and I spoke quite a bit about art that she loved as a kid, and it got me thinking about my own experiences of discovering art. For me, and I think for most people, it's a two-part process. You learn to love art that your parents or other family members introduce you to first, and then as you get older, you start to discover stuff on your own or your friends turn you on to stuff. The first part for me was a lot of music from my dad, namely 60s and 70s soul and rock, uh, reggae, lots and lots of other stuff. I am pretty sure I got my obsessive passion for music from him. So that was a lovely foundation. But then I discovered hip hop and dance music by myself as an adolescent. And it was amazing to have shared musical touchstones with my dad, but I also loved having a separate musical life of my own. The same can be said for theater. My grandma and my mom introduced me to musicals, Rodgers and Hammerstein and Gershwin and Cole Porter, amongst many, many others. But then I started studying acting and my tastes moved more towards straight plays. And I, again, discovered a world of my own. And that doesn't mean that I kept my art discoveries secret from my parents. I introduced my parents to a lot of my music, and I went to see a lot of great straight plays with them too. But also, as I've mentioned many times before on this podcast, taste is subjective. There's a lot of stuff that I'm really into that means nothing to the people I love. Some of it they even actively dislike, and I love that. Part of growing up is, obviously, asserting your independence and discovering new and exciting bits of the world on your own. I was lucky enough to have parents who loved art and exposed me to all sorts of amazing stuff. Most people will eventually make artistic discoveries on their own, but having that groundwork was, for me, like having a compass. I was given a starting point and the tools to navigate through the art world on my own from there, and that's invaluable to me. 
So in summary, thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. Thanks, grandma. Couldn't have done it without you. Why don't you take a moment this week to thank the people who helped you to develop your taste? Wouldn't that be nice? And that concludes the soppy, sentimental portion of today's programming. Phew, right? Okay, let's chug on ahead to my brilliant chat with the incredible Lily Bevan about Asterix, Starlight Express, and Carol Churchill. So, why don't we start with Asterix? <laughs> yes. So, the question I start off with uh, almost all the time is, uh, do you remember the experience of, like, discovering Asterix? Or is it, like, you know, something that was just always around? Yeah, well, first of all, do you even know who Asterix is? Yeah. I think lots of people didn't know, yeah. get Asterix as a kid, maybe, in America. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely not an American thing, but I just, I know... You know about it, it from uh, living in the UK, yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, we'll go into this, but to, just to establish that, like, Asterix is a tiny French ghoul in a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, and um, he has a big friend called Obelix, and it's a initially a series of drawn comics, and then was made into like films. But no, I don't remember. I think uh, I used to go to Waterstones Bookshop a lot when I was a kid and I was lucky that if I was allowed a treat I could choose a book and I used to I used to just choose the Asterix books from when I was quite small and then I worked out that they were in the video shop after a while too and then I whenever I could rent a video I'd often choose an Asterix adventure there are there are quite a lot of different books they became once they I, I've I, I, I looked it up but they started in um sort of like the 50s yeah in the 50s quite old yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah, I think the, the. But my attachment was in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was. Um, yeah, I'm assuming you weren't around in the fifties. <laughs> to... No, no, I wasn't. Um, yeah, so uh, it was this kind of childhood, ever-present thing. I mean, it was quite a big deal in the UK as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Asterix is a national hero in France. Mm. And we are close to Europe. Ah! Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we, at best, get a, a, a good amount of sort of European culture. And Asterix, I think, was something that we were lucky to inherit. But also, Asterix has been translated into a lot of languages. And one of the things that I love about it, and I've kind of continued admiring, is it's, Asterix is very clever linguistically, but then they've managed to also translate it. And from what I've heard, it's clever linguistically in many languages. Mm. So there's kind of a group effort going on, not only by the original illustrator and writer, but by a whole lot of translators who have worked really carefully to kind of adapt the puns into different languages. And I really love the idea of that. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah. Was it? stories that kind of drew you in or the you know drawings themselves or were there were there cartoons as well as live action movies yes yeah, yeah. there are there, there, yeah there's only one live action one and i've never seen that it's the cartoon so at the beginning of each asterix comic there is an intro short introduction it's only three lines may i read it to you adam yes please great okay so it says the year is 50 bc Gaul is entirely occupied by the Romans. Well, 
not entirely. One small village of indomitable Gauls still holds out against the invaders. And life is not easy for the Roman legionnaires who garrison the fortified camps of Totorum, Aquarium, Laudanum and Compendium. Which are jokey names of the... So, so what that's telling us is the story, which is that, uh, which is sort of true, that the Roman Empire had kind of completely conquered everywhere. But there were some Gaulish, I don't know if Gaulish is a word, Gallic um, mm. villages in France. I, I believe this is true. I might be wrong. Um, holding out against them. And so this is the story of one of the last village. And that's why I love it, because it's about it's about history. It's about an underdog. And it's about like a load of weirdos in the forest mm. hanging on. And I'm in rehearsals for As You Like It at the moment which is also about a load of weirdos in a forest <laughs> hanging on. I've been in Into the Woods. That's about a load of weirdos in the forest hanging on too. So I would argue that a load of weirdos in a forest hanging on is a really, really, like in Star Wars when they meet the Ewoks, a really, really good place for a story. <laughs> yeah. And also that link between like clever, beautiful language as well um, in As You Like It. Maybe not puns, but... That seems like a nice connection too. Yes, and there's lots of puns. I mean, as we know in um, in Shakespeare, there's there's lots of kind of naughty languages mm-hmm. about like filth, all covered up in like funny stories about milkmaids and stuff, and jars of mustard, and who knows. But <laughs> um, the language, yeah. So Asterix and Obelix are called Asterix and Obelix in the English and the French, but a lot of the other characters have got yeah character names that have been. They're kind of made for the English reader. Like the druid is called Getafix. The dog is called Dogmatics. Uh, in French, he's called Idafix, uh, which is different. But for us, he's called Dogmatics because it's a pun on dog and it's and he's very dogged. And the character names are one of my just like total favorite things uh, about it. Yeah. Is the historical stuff, like when they travel to other countries, you know, if they're meeting Cleopatra, is it a totally fictionalized, just like adventure involving kind of historical characters? Or is there any grounding in reality? That's a really good question. I say there is quite a lot of grounding in reality. I mean, they certainly, you know, in Egypt, everything's very Egyptian. And like how in the village of Gaul, they live off roast boar. Uh, mm. That's what everyone likes to eat. And they have a big festival when, when they defeat the Romans again and everyone eats roast boar, which I would imagine is, is pretty accurate. And, you know, in England, when they go and there's a battle, everyone stops at four o'clock for tea. Um, <laughs> like whether that they were accurate, drinking yeah. <laughs> like tea in little teacups in 50 BC on the battlefield. I'm not totally sure about, but I definitely appreciate the sentiment. It's quite sort of ruthless in terms of taking the Mickey out of like ethnicity but it is universal do you know mm-hmm. what i mean so i feel like everyone gets it I and mean, they absolutely wrote the piss out of the english so i feel like it's kind of fine i hope it's kind of fun. you know i hope no one would feel too upset by the sort of stereotypes that are happening absolutely all over it it's kind of a bit like monty python mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very silly yeah. Um, yeah and and kind of wordy and every single person you meet is daft do you, do you remember understanding and engaging with the humor when you were little? Is it, I mean, probably some of that wordplay wouldn't mean as much to a child as it would to an adult, but... Um... You know, I think that's really true. I think I didn't understand a lot of the names. In fact, like when I had a little um, look about the series yesterday to have a think about it, I realized like the postman's called Postal Districts, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and um, I wouldn't have known. 
what was going on when I was like six. Also, they come at you really, really fast because everyone's got everyone's got a great name. But there is like the kind of silliness, the Monty Python-esque taking the piss out of people. Was that stuff that you could understand as a kid? Yeah, I think definitely. I find a lot of cartoons very saccharine. Mm. You know, they're, they're a bit schmaltzy. And if, I mean, it would have been great if Asterix had had a female friend who was as brave as he was because mm. something I feel strongly now is that I love stories where the girls get to do what the boys get to do. But they were unconventional, Asterix and Obelix. Asterix was very angry and tiny. And I suppose I was very angry and tiny around that age. Aww. <laughs> 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 and he quite often wanted to do things like run into forts and attack legions and he couldn't really because he was too small and so then the druid getafix would give him the magic potion and then he would sort of leap into the air and sort of glow a dazzling color and become superhumanly strong so like what kid doesn't like the sound of that yeah yeah <laughs> you know yeah. it's really perfect isn't it like suddenly from being sort of the crappiest one at sports day like you could take a bit of magic potion and start like zooming around and bashing romans and teachers and whatever it's like yeah. seemed very appealing and then he has this friend who isn't very bright and he's enormous who fell in the magic potion when he was a baby obelix so he's always strong but he's like really chilled out and he doesn't really want to fight he doesn't really want to go anywhere he kind of wants to lie around and eat roast boar um <laughs> But they really love each other. It's kind of a real friendship story. And mm. so Obelix will come along with Asterix uh, on the adventures and sort of bash Romans when it's required. They're very loyal to each other. And I, I think I thought that was kind of marvellous. I think I do think that is marvellous. That seems like a <laughs> lot of boxes ticked for a kid. Like, you know, adventure and friendship and magic and, yeah, all of that. Yeah, I think so. So... Was Starlight Express a childhood thing for you or did you discover that as an adult? Starlight Express, I was <laughs> by Andrew Lloyd Webber. The musical about trains played by actors on roller skates. Mm-hmm. Is like so far ridi- so standard. <laughs> yeah, is ridiculous. Um, and <laughs> I have seen it 11 times. Oh my um, God. <laughs> It seemed to me to be just the most exciting thing in the world. I think even when I was a child, I felt it was a bit ridiculous. Have you seen it, Adam? I've, I mean, I've seen clips of it on TV, but I haven't ever seen it in person. I haven't seen it live. Right. I mean, I think I would hear that a lot if I asked people who I work with. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It's, you know, whatever the eighth most successful theatrical production of all time or something um, is it yeah wow, okay like yeah insanely... it ran for many many years in many many countries and it yeah. made some people a whole lot of money i'm not sure if it was the trains themselves but when you when choosing something i love these two things are very close to my heart one mm. because of the underdog reason like asterix rusty the steam train was having a hard time other trains were bullying him and it was getting pretty rough. I mean, I was about to say in in where. I mean, this is a really good point. Where is Starlight Express set? It took me till I was much older to uh, to understand there is some sort of subtext about this all being 
a child playing a game of trains. Mm. And there is a version because they did do an update. And I'm not sure this is even in the original. It might be where there's a child's voice at the beginning who's like, come in control, come in control. I think I may have just thought that was God. But anyway, for me, this was not toy trains. This was like a universe where there were a lot of trains. They weren't that nice to each other and they were all on roller skates. And it was very dark and there were lasers. And that's a really good universe. Yeah. (laughs) I think that is, yeah, another thing that kind of ticks a lot of boxes in a, especially, I mean, in anyone's mind, but in a child's mind, for sure, like roller skates. um, Yes. You know, when you saw it, was it in a theater where they were roller skating around the audience or that the, like, there was a track that came out into the, into the audience? Yes, both. I've seen both of those. So Mm. there's track in the audience and track behind. And also, so um, the actors are, now I understand they were actors, are skating very fast all around behind you, which is very exciting. And I've never seen that happen again. There were also Mm. amazing like ramps on stage where the actors would skate up them and do backflips while singing, whilst in quite lumpy train costumes on roller skates. And I now know a lot of actors, and I'm not sure I could hand you one who'd be capable of that. It is insane. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a lot of dry ice. Uh, <laughs> I feel like the whole of the 80s was full of dry ice. Yeah. Do you know and, what I mean? Like, think about mm. Night Rider, just like rooms would be just rooms and exteriors were just sort of full of dry ice everywhere. And lasers Haze. too. And lasers. That just seems, that seems to have just like naturally, the earth seems to have stopped doing that. Yeah. Um, but in the 80s, it was doing quite a lot of dry icing itself. I enjoy that. It's still mm-hmm. to this day, if I'm in a show and someone doesn't quite know what to do, I can't stop myself by <laughs> helpfully saying, why don't we put loads of dry ice on the stage? Um, (laughs) And everyone's just like, what are you talking about? Because I kind of love it. I love the smell of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Starlight Express, it's dry ice and it's lasers. It's got quite a complicated story about loyalty and broken loyalty and romance. I mean, I'm not sure what trains do when they fall in love and go home together at night. Yeah. No? Um, I, I, I don't know. But... You know, let's maybe not ask too many questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to overthink it. <laughs> no, uh, but it was so exciting. And um, uh, my favorite bit was there's a train called Electra, who is an electric train, uh, who ca- who descends from the ceiling on a rotating bridge. And everyone sort of sings a quite heavenly chorus at him that sort of goes, Electra. And then it kind of goes into like cool electric music. It goes, and then Electra sings in a sort of electrified voice and has a mohawk of red, blue, and silver. I mean, I could reenact the whole show, but I don't know how long we have. But that bit's really good. There's a rap that's very good yeah it, it it's just it's got a lot in it starlight express and again it could all be done by monty python <laughs> yes it's but it is it's meant to be quite serious it's not like supposed to be yeah silly. no it's that that's what i love about it it's insane like it, so, there was a meeting andrew Lloyd weber walked into a room and was like it's a musical about trains falling in love with each other <laughs> yeah and racing around the theater in victoria and someone was like, great, like how many pairs of roller skates are we going to need? Yeah. And like, that's like 1980, that's like the early 80s. That's the spirit. 
yeah. <laughs> but the fact that it was this enormous success and, you know, it ran for years and years and years in the West End and on Broadway shows that sometimes ideas that seem kind of crazy end up being the ones that people love the most. Definitely. And often at the heart of these things, there is something in it that makes a lot of sense. So I haven't given this any thought, which is probably a good thing because I shouldn't just sit in my flat and think about Starlight Express. It's too tempting. (laughs) But right, this is a story about trains getting better. Or at least, what does better mean? Faster. You know, so it's going, the problem is the steam train is becoming obsolete. Mm -hmm. He's being replaced by the diesel train. Again, I would have liked more lady trains. The lady trains tend to be like carriages. Not so Mm -hmm. keen on that. But the diesel train has come in and sort of blown him out of town. And the diesel train's like really mean, like sexy asshole (laughs) (laughs) train. I think he winked at me. I'm just suddenly getting a flashback once, which seems to have probably begun the whole of my puberty yeah um <laughs> how confusing that is yeah. she said I to feel the therapist funny. yeah i feel funny the, the the diesel train winked at me um god i think that did i hope i hope that happened but anyway and then he has a hard time because the electric train comes along and people relate to this don't they they feel like whatever it was that they grew up with it gets outdated and the next thing comes along and it's kind of exciting but does it have as much heart as the Mm. thing they grew up with that does it have the same values can everyone work together you know this is like the industrial revolution this is like band's voyage to the moon you know this is the internet this is like every time something new comes along isn't it so that Mm. story will appeal to people and it and it obviously did and then the steam train sings really beautiful well some people would say really beautiful songs about the starlight so for him the starlight is like his heart and he's an old-fashioned train but he has heart and will these newfangled trains also have heart and ethics so that's the story that people are gonna get behind you know that that's why i think partly they like the show also there's loads of stars there's a massive massive what i guess was a back cloth or just a big black wall at the back with millions and millions of stars and um it was really beautiful i thought i'd never seen that and the theater is full of magic i think it's fantastic when you see things in the theater that are, that are a great spectacle Hmm. and um uh, yeah Like you were saying, I think the idea of finding people who have the talent to just be in musicals generally, people who can sing really well, act really well, dance really well, but then adding on top of that, doing the whole show on roller skates, having to be able to like roller skate really quickly and do acrobatic stuff and still be doing all of the other three things at the same time is just like insane. Yeah, Um, isn't it? I mean, it's insane. Also, most actors do two shows a day on Saturdays and often on like a Wednesday as well. Mm. So doing all of that once is quite serious. Doing it twice with about an hour and a half in between to get like a chicken sandwich from Pret-a-Manger is (laughs) pretty damn athletic. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a friend who's in The Lion King and it is hard work. Like I definitely take my hat off to those guys. They are really, really skillful my nan took me to see starlight express i remember um whenever it was my birthday they'd ask me what i wanted to do and i'd always request it so she was very sweet and i think it must have been quite spectacle for her as well because mm-hmm. you know we didn't go to the theater all that much i suppose she went to musical theater and stuff but like 
the whole thing of the like darkness and the roller skating. I also have a memory that one time we saw it and someone skated off the stage and like totally wiped out someone in the third row. Um, and they stopped and had to call the ambulance. Oh I shouldn't my God. laugh. But yeah, I mean, again, I mean, it could have been a dream, but I think, I mean, given the odds, 11 times, I probably would have seen that once. I mean, they must have yeah. gone off piece sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But that's, I, I think, probably part of its staying power and part of its like long-term appeal is that it didn't really matter if you liked standard musicals or not. Like You could go to see that show and just be there for the spectacle and the kind of acrobatics. And Yeah, I mean, my like... man liked um, Shakespeare and she read lots of stuff like that. But um, I thought, well, I don't know. To be quite honest, I have to confess, I'm not sure any of my family really love Starlight Express as much as <laughs> I do. I think that they were being very kind for a long time going to Starlight Express with me. Hmm. And when I mention it now, they don't sort of go, oh, I wish we could all go to watch Starlight Express one more time. I feel like the days that they might be pleased that those days are behind them. But yeah. it helped. these are the reasons that I got into the theatre was these moments where you just think it's so, so magical, don't you? Yeah, and, you know, being lucky enough to have family who indulge your obsessions or you know the things that you enjoy the most that's well that's everything isn't it I mean that is everything that is we are the lucky ones who had Mm -hmm. someone who would take us you know that's that I now see that is everything that is lovely uh so what about Carol Churchill Right. Well, I feel like uh, there's a lot to talk about with Carol Churchill because uh, she's such an extraordinary playwright and she's, I would imagine, hands down our most successful, potentially our most successful playwright. It's sort of annoying that everyone goes most successful female playwright, like that makes Mm. you a sort of different sort of alien or something. But she certainly extremely successful and all around the world. But I love Carol Churchill's work and Two of her plays in particular, which are Escaped Alone, which I saw at the Royal Court a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and Cloud Nine, which I saw a production of at the Almeida quite a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And those two, you know how like there's playwrights and there's plays, and then there are productions that sort of as well kind of quite specifically like stick in your head. So for me, when I think of her work, I've, which I love, those two, I get a quite a strong vision in my head of those those two particular productions you i'm assuming were very familiar with her work before you saw cloud nine is that a safe assumption or i knew her work i that that was the play that really made me um really realized how how, that just astonished me and made me feel like yes this woman exists <laughs> mm, yeah and I, I mean i think if i'm not mistaken that play was the play that really made a lot of people feel that way um that it was one of her first really huge successes and she'd written quite a lot of plays before that but that was like something that put her on a different level right um, and just really i mean you you tell tell me i don't want to like put words in your mouth but like what what is it about that play that appealed to you that you you know were uh, amazed by well yeah well it was written in 1979 but I saw it in more like 2000 and 
10 or something like mm. that. So mm. a long time afterwards. In Cloud Nine, the first half is set in a sort of Victorian colonial Africa. And the second act is set in the London Park in 19... 19- 79 but between the acts only 25 years passes for the characters and all the actors are in both act one and act two and the characters who appear in both acts are played by different actors in the first and the second the first one it's a sort of satirical comedy on victorian society and act two is a sort of deconstruction of that it's very clever because it uses to me it uses the personhood of the actor's cast to really get to the bottom of roles gender roles power roles history roles because as soon as you get the same person like i love it when playwrights write cross-casting themselves mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like because quite often as actors we end up being like oh yeah and you, you be the butler as well and that's fine and like uh, you know i'm always happy to do that because often people can't afford the right number of actors and that can be quite good because you're like oh now i'm this like butler guy who isn't really normally played by me but i get to do something else so that's cool but what's even cooler is when the writer creates it with a real purpose Mm -hmm. you know so you have someone suddenly who was playing queen victoria is like playing a homosexual man in 1979 in a park because then you get the essence of that person whether they're a man or a woman being quite irrelevant playing in two very different sort of plopped into two very different roles by society you know what i mean like now he or she's queen victoria and now he or she's like this guy in the park that's written by carol churchill with a with um an intention um so it's kind of masterfully done and she has a link between those two characters and the two acts why she's chosen one person to play them and then i think you start to see something really amazing which is like just what the human spirit person is behind the sort of gendered and time placed characters mm-hmm. and how we might all fare if we were plopped into victorian england ancient greece you know if we were plopped into male female born bodies uh if we were plopped into homosexual or heterosexual sexualities you know and because these things are pretty arbitrary and um we get so identified with our own ones Mm -hmm. but actually this is a play that's pretty early in 1979 that's really picking at that yeah and like you know clearly people playing other genders in theater is a is a convention as old as theater i mean it used to be that only men were performing and so they played all the women's roles but this is like taking the idea of playing with gender and playing with sexuality and intentionally incorporating that into the play, not out of necessity because women aren't allowed to be actors or whatever, but to incorporating it into the narrative. And isn't it that people play, like one person will play the character in the first act and then somebody else will play them in the second act as well? Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Yeah, so just really interchanging all of these characters and it changes the meaning of of what's happening as well when you see that role being played from different perspectives and, you know, different actors play different roles differently. Can I say different? Exactly, and Mm. and the characters, you know, yeah, exactly. So the colonial administrator's wife is it's specified to be played by a man the Joshua, the servant who's specified is a black servant is played by a white actor. The um, son is played by a woman the daughter is played by a ventriloquist's dummy um you know so so no n- nothing is played 
as it is. Mm-hmm. And then in the second half, the characters appear like like Victoria, Queen Victoria is also in the second half, but the second half's in 1979. So it's kind of Queen Victoria, but it's also a modern sort of update. And it's actually Queen Victoria's daughter appears in the second half because it's only 25 years later. So there's like what would also happen in the play where you go 25 years later, you've also done a huge time jump of kind of over 100 years. Mm-hmm. So, so that and Carol Churchill does that quite a quite a bit, as far as I know, where she jumps in history. But again, with like in Top Girls, where you know the first scene, there's a sort of amazing smorgasbord of historical characters all having a quite modern dinner together, and then it goes to the 80s, and it, it it's so carefully done. But it's such a it's such a clever thing to do to kind of bring history into the theatre. And why not? Because this is the kind of thing the theatre's good at. Because film is much more naturalistic potentially, mm-hmm. uh, or you know. If film has such capacity to be so naturalistic, whereas the theatre is never naturalistic, really. We're all sort of sitting in this room, you know, normally some of us are up one end pretending to be other people for the rest of us. Like, it's quite obviously a game. So why not play it, you know, with, with kind of bold rules, I think. And Carol mm-hmm. Churchill is brilliant at that. And she's so funny. You know, I like jokes and she's just really funny. But it's mm-hmm. also it's easy to make a mess when you sort of just turn everything on its head. You don't necessarily get a very effective result, mm-hmm. um, and and you don't necessarily say anything very interesting or helpful to the debate. Whereas I would argue that she's she's almost the best at turning everything on its head, but then making it land in a very calculated, clever, pointed way, and it leaves mm-hmm. you really thinking. Um, yeah. And that one just made me think, wow, this whole colonial stuff's really weird. Actually, I mean, we know that, but like seeing it not just satirized but really explored by real bodies exploring the sort of terrible racism and sexism and sexual perversion of it was really challenging and funny and powerful for me seeing that play as was seeing the other one which is my other favorite which was escaped alone which is about four older women having tea together in a garden and that's all that happens in that play and they talk together and they have inter- their internal monologues kind of exposed. And they are n- not thinking what you'd think they might be thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's a very, what's become quite a famous passage from Escape Alone, where one of the women, where we sort of jump into her head with this kind of lighting change. And she's this very, you know, sweet, well-dressed, modest, unassuming, sort of English woman having a cup of tea in a garden. And we start to hear her story inside her head. And she is so angry, with good reason, as I remember it. And she starts to say the words terrible rage. And she says terrible rage, terrible rage terrible rage and she says it in my head like 20 or 30 times may have been less but and she's on her feet by then I think and it was so powerful it's one of my favorite moments I've ever witnessed in the theater because I think loads of older women are angry with such good reason they've Mm. just been like squashed and battered about and not listened to for like fucking ages and (laughs) this just let me count the ways and we're really bad at allowing women to be angry we're really bad at allowing older women to be anything so for Carol Churchill to put this character uh, who looks one thing on the outside and then let us hear her voice and what it says is terrible rage literally it just took my breath away the truth of it yeah and that casting having all four of those women be older is explicit in the script and you know she's not 
a huge writer of stage directions, but that is very clearly yeah, you a don't requirement. See, yeah, it's a play about four old women. They, mm. you know, um, did, I didn't realize it specified that in the stage directions, but I mean, I think you'd be mad not to cast older women playing mm -hmm. them. The actresses I saw at the court were amazing. I think Deborah Finney was one of them. And they, yeah, and the other thing is they're underseen, you know, actresses that age. I mean, there's like, in theory, it's getting better, you know, and Helen Mirren and people like that, but there's still a long way to go. It was just wonderful. They're so technically capable. You know, it's a, it's a lot about technique, this stuff. And they've, they've been doing it for ages. They're the best at it. Yeah. So, like, we've got to see them on the stage in fantastic parts and clever, difficult parts. This was a play that was all about that. It, it made me realise something about they all sat on chairs for a lot of it and how wonderful it was to see them just in their bodies, you know, taking up space, sitting in the sen in their sort of on balance and sort of really centred on the stage and being allowed to speak and speak and speak. You know, very often women when they're in a play will like bring on the tea tray and then like bugger off or like mm -hmm. i know this from experience like the men will be doing something in the middle and women especially older women will be like that's jack's mother so she'll like come in and sort of faff about and then like leave but to just get them stationary like right in the middle of the stage on voice like the power of it i loved it you know just just to see the stillness and the presence of having the, of those women there with actually talking some brilliant words it was heaven for me she is a feminist she's a socialist and her politics come through in her writing it's like it's all very intentional the stuff that you were talking about with cloud nine where cross-casting uh, is not something that's like unheard of but writing it into the script with intention, saying this is part of the story that I'm telling, showing, you know, playing with gender, playing with sexuality, all of that stuff is essential to the story that she's trying to tell and the points that she's trying to make. And it's the same thing with Escaped Alone, that it's like casting older women in these roles. It's not just I'm providing an opportunity for older women to perform. It's intentional it's part of the story it's it's essential to the message that she's trying to convey um and i think that that's really amazing too yeah and it's not like just casting them it's writing them who you cast is one thing but who you write is diff is different you know and they're written as women of us of a certain age Mm -hmm. um so that's it's unusual and it wasn't that long ago skate alone it was like about 2017 there and it's only 50 minutes long <laughs> Which is amazing. I think it was on maybe uh, before, once before 2017, a couple of, a year before or something. But it's a relatively recent play. But they're both very readable, I would think. Escape to Loan and um, Cloud Nine. If there isn't a production on and anyone was interested, you know, I always think it's worth ordering a copy and having a read. Because I think her plays work really well read on the page. I really enjoy re reading plays. I've been reading plays since I was quite small, like books. And uh, I think that's a, I, I, I think that's a really lovely way to get into them. I did it. I did a, a short play festival at the theatre 503 in London uh, called Top 
Trump's the weekend of the Trump inauguration and everyone was feeling very sad and desperate over here. Well, not everyone, but I was. And yeah. uh, the people at the theatre were, they, they curated a sort of festival of very short plays so that were all responses to that day. And um, I was really lucky because I wrote one called Who Am I, which was included. And Carol Churchill wrote one too. I got to meet her. I They, mm. they had a, a woman, they had debates after the show and they had some really interesting debates from journalists and like people involved in politics after the plays they were designed to be provocative and encourage debate and they had a woman from republicans abroad over in theater doing a debate and she said something disparaging about obama and i got very angry because i really love him and I was sort of heckling, not really heckling, sort of ostensibly asking her a question but I'd sort of lost my temper <laughs> and um, Carol Churchill was sitting in the row front of me and sort of turned around and gave me a smile and may have said something encouraging and it was a really nice way to meet her because I was like yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> I felt really excited to have work presented alongside someone as absolutely incredible as that she's like a total hero so yeah. I felt very shy but I wanted to be near her or try and talk to her all night but it was difficult to know what to say because I admire her so much <laughs> yeah yeah what an amazing experience um, yeah. So I think we have covered quite a bit of ground. I'm Great. very, I am uh, very pleased. I hope that you are pleased as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. That was great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. If people who are listening to this want to find out more about you, uh, how would they go about that? I have a website, which is Lily Bevan, which is, I shouldn't forget because it is lilybevan.com. <laughs> which isn't that hard yeah. <laughs> for, me, for me to remember because it's my name. Um, <laughs> and I am in rehearsal for As You Like It at the Globe Theatre in London. So I'm going to be there um, exciting. over the summer, which is nice. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. This has been very fun. I'm going to finish, uh, Adam, by giving you an example of a rude double entendre from Shakespeare, because I feel like we began talking about that with yeah. asterisks. Mm -hmm. So in Hamlet, a play which of which you may be very well aware, Hamlet says, Lady, shall I lie in your lap? Ophelia says, no, my lord. Hamlet, I mean my head upon your lap. Ophelia, I, my lord. Hamlet, do you think I meant country matters? Ophelia, I think nothing, my lord. Hamlet, that's a fair thought to lie between maids' legs. So there we go, because mm. country matters could mean something else about yes. the countryside, or it could mean something rude, couldn't it? <laughs> yes, it could. <laughs> Very so, so, saucy Shakespeare. Very saucy William Shakespeare. Um, so, yes, Thank you so much for chatting. Thank you, Adam. It's been Thank lovely. You. All right. Speak soon. Bye. Bye. A big round of applause for Lily. She's the best. Remember to go and see her at the Globe in London immediately after you finish listening to this podcast. Thank you for your unquestioning compliance on that. Okay. Recommendations. This week is a sad one, and that's because Toni Morrison died. What a tremendous loss. She was a person who knew how to use language in a way that I've never experienced from anyone else. Every phrase, every word was so thoughtful and purposeful 
and had such great meaning. Her work means so much to me, and all of her books deserve your attention, but Beloved really has a large piece of my heart. The theme of the book, writ large, is the lasting physical and psychological impact of the horrors of slavery, but it's also about the lengths to which a mother will go to shield her children from the suffering she's endured. It's a ghost story. It's a love story. It's so rich and emotionally complex and... I was absolutely floored by it when I read it for the first time as a teenager. If you haven't read it, please do. It will make your heart ache, but reading Beloved is an experience that will stay with you for the rest of your life. I'm so sad that Toni Morrison is gone, but I feel so privileged to have read and loved her work, and I'm so grateful for the awe-inspiring legacy she leaves behind. Okay, friends, that's it for this week. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for please, please following me on social media at Spark Parade and rating and reviewing the show wherever you download or stream it. Have a safe and prosperous week. Until next time, bye. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.